If you happen to drive through some of the states in the U.S., you will see that there are message board or billboards with slogans, Christian slogans. One of the common ones is the slogan that you will see driving along the highways, Jesus saves. But there's also another message that you'll find on billboards, that is, it was particularly popular a few years ago, Jesus is coming again. As we see these signs, Jesus saves, and particularly Jesus is coming again, we actually must ask the question, do people really believe in the second coming of Christ? It appears that the teaching of the second coming of Christ has little place in the life and the ministry of the church and also in the lives of believers. Frankly, it appears that this message does not stir the heart of Christians or many Christians and do not catch or fire the imagination. Why is this then such an attitude, an ambivalence to the message of the coming of Christ? I think that there are several reasons, but because of time, I want us to list at least two reasons why the second coming of Christ seemed to be at a low ebb in the life and ministry of the church. When I think of the most obvious reasons is the particular materialistic nature of our times. Despite the alarming problems that we have in society, these are some of the best times. They are some of the worst times, but some of the best times. There are great opportunities to make money and to succeed. And many view life through a materialistic lens, that life is concerned with the here and now, and therefore they cannot see beyond this horizon of our materialistic life. Secondly, the great apocalyptic fervor of the second half of the 20th century seem to have a direct impact on how we think of the future. You'll recall, especially in the days leading up to the year 2000, and that tremendous Y2K scare. People don't talk about that anymore. But we had all kinds of fanciful notion of what was going to happen. Some even believed that the year 2000 would mark the end of this age. And as we now know, the year came and passed, and nothing occurred. No computers crashed, and certainly Christ did not return. And because of these various movements throughout, especially throughout the, the latter part of the 20th century, of people predicting and calling upon people to prepare for the coming of the Lord, we seem to have gotten to a place where we are like the generation that Peter speaks of, a generation that asks, where is the promise of his coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But what is of little concern to us, it means in many circles, the coming of Christ, the Gospels forthrightly, unabashedly, set forth as truth that Jesus Christ is coming again. The Gospels make this clear. And Matthew's Gospel, which occurs first in the New Testament, not because it was the first that was written, but because of its close connection to the Old Testament, it ties Jesus to the Old Testament. This Gospel of Matthew emphasizes the coming, the second coming, or the parousia. The term parousia simply means coming. It emphasizes the parousia of the Lord Jesus Christ. In terms of Matthew's gospel, in terms of its structure, it is a difficult gospel to outline, and some have sought to outline the gospel chronologically. Jesus' preparation for ministry in the first four chapters, and then in the bulk of the book, it talks about his ministries in his ministry of teaching and miracles in Galilee, and then finally his ministry in Jerusalem and his death. But we do know that there are five blocks of teaching in Matthew that seem to set out the major contours of this gospel. We know that the, there are these five blocks in Matthew because of the refrain, and when Jesus had finished these sayings. And so you find that repetition in chapter 7, 28, chapter 11, verse 1, chapter 13, verse 53, chapter 19, verse 1, and chapter 26, verse 1. These refrains, which occur in these texts, mark the major discourses of Jesus. His Sermon on the Mount, his direction to the disciples regarding missions in chapter 10, the parables of the kingdom in chapter 13, his teaching on discipleship in chapter 18, and in the final discourse called the Olivet Discourse because it occurred on the Mount of Olives, we find our text located in chapters 25, 24 to 25. Now chapter 24 divides into the following units. First of all, in verses 1 to 14, Jesus speaks of the eschatological signs that will precede his second coming. In verses 15 to 28, there is the saying on the destruction of Jerusalem. And verses 29 to 35, the glorious arrival of the Son of Man. Then the final unit in chapter 24, verses 36 to 51, talks about the nature of his coming and the appropriate response. But what I want us to do is to look then at the text. Of course, it is a difficult text because of the volume of the material and because it is also a text where there is repetition and so it's not necessarily straightforward. What I want us to do is to sketch then the outline and the main ideas that are to be found here. First, in verses 1 to 14, we see the signs, the eschatological signs that will precede the coming of the Lord. The text begins with Jesus departing from the temple. 
He leaves the temple for the final time and there are those who will tell you that this is the abandonment of the temple. And as he leaves the temple, the disciples point out to him the magnificence of this structure. It is said that the Romans themselves believed that the temple in Jerusalem was one of the finest structures in their kingdom. And the disciples point out the temple to Jesus simply seeking to evoke in him admiration and praise for the temple. Jesus, however, responds in verse 2, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you that not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. A very important statement. You see, the temple in Jerusalem, we are told by Josephus, were constructed from very large stones. There were stones some 40 feet long, some 12 feet high, and some 18 feet wide. There were columns, we are told, that if three men were to link their arms together, they could hardly wrap it around one of those columns. This was a magnificent structure. But Jesus does not stop to admire the temple, but to speak of its destruction. He says, not one stone shall be left upon another. He was speaking, of course, of the destruction of the temple in AD 70 by the army of Titus. After Jesus leaves the temple, he goes to the Mount of Olives, one of the central mountain ranges running across Israel, a mountain that overlooks Jerusalem. And the disciples come to Jesus. He has now just told them that the temple will be destroyed. And so they come to Jesus with a question. They said to him, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, they, they were reading the destruction of Jerusalem as the end of the age. And Jesus now begins to deal with this question of his coming, of the end of the age. What does he say regarding his second coming? First, in verses 4 to 8, he tells them that the coming, his second coming, will be, or the time before his second coming, will be characterized by great deception and great travail, great suffering. And Grant Osborne points this out. He warns them, take heed, be on your guard, be wide awake. In verse 4, take heed. That no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Our Lord says that his coming will be preceded by great deception. Many will come and will claim to be the Messiah over a period of time. Not only will they will they claim to be the Messiah, but they will find people who are willing to follow them so that they will deceive many. And yet, the disciples are told to take heed, to be on their guard, because there's only one Messiah, only one sent of God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So they must be clear in their thinking. They must be clear-headed. They must be alert and sober. And he's going to make this point about false teachers again and, and again throughout the text. But he says that his coming will not only be characterized by great deception, 
It's, it's amazing how gullible people are. Some of the things that you think are the most ludicrous things and wildest speculation and fancy, people will believe it. You tell somebody, you know, Martians landed in, in the desert in Texas. And you're you're, you're going to go and find people who put up a Facebook page to these Martians who are in the desert. And they're going to have bus tours wanting to go and visit them. He says the days before his coming will be marked not only by deception, but by difficulties. Difficulties. And he describes these difficulties in verse 6. He says, you will hear of wars, rumors of wars. Do not be troubled. For all these things must, there is this little word in Matthew, day, you find it again in Luke, day, must. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. These things must occur. Why? Because this is the will of God. You will hear of wars, but do not be troubled. These things must come to pass. But these wars, the rumors of war and wars that will come, do not signal the end. He says the end is not yet. He continues with this theme of wars. He says nation will rise up against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. There will not only be warfare, but there will be natural disasters prior to his coming. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. But when we see the upheaval in creation, the difficulties in creation, he says... These are not the end. They are merely the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of the birth pangs. The beginning of the contractions. It's an imagery used of a woman who's about to give birth. She has these contractions. The baby is not yet born, but it's a sign that the baby is coming. When you see these signs, these upheavals in creation, it doesn't mean that I have come. But it does mean that the process is on the way. I'm coming. His coming will be marked by great deception and great difficulties. But his coming also, he tells us, will be marked by great persecution and apostasy. And yes, great mission. That's what you find in verses 9 to 14. It says to them that before he comes, they will be delivered up to tribulation. And will kill you. And you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. That Christians are not going to be popular in society. That you are not going to be famous and loved. In fact, it says that we will be delivered up. That coming, the time before his coming will be marked by persecution of Christians. It's, it's interesting that even in these days, while we are not... In the West, being taken to court for believing in Christ. But our position, our stance on Christ is challenged on every side. You can do whatever you want, it seems, in the public square. You can hold whatever religious views you want to hold. And even in our schools, you are able to worship, if you want, some other God. But what you cannot do is stand for Christ. What you cannot do is proclaim Christ in the public square without a backlash. Why? 
Because you see, the coming of Christ will be preceded by persecution. Believers will not be loved, they will be hated. But not only will the time before Christ be marked by persecution of Christians, it will be marked by apostasy. This is what you find in verse 10. And then many will be offended. There you have the word scandalizo. A difficult word in many regards because it, it can mean to be trapped. The scandalizo was the, the bait that was set for a bird. When the bird went into the trap, it would spring and the bird would be caught. But it also could mean to stumble over something so that one falls. And very often in the New Testament it is used in terms of stumbling. He says, and then many will be offended, many will stumble. But it doesn't mean that they're just going to stub their toe. It means that they're going to stumble and fall, and fall irretrievably. That prior to the coming of the Lord, there will be those who once profess faith, who will stumble and never rise again. They will depart from the faith. I have on my shelves at home books by great scholars who, in the 1960s, defended the biblical truths, wrote books, argued persuasively for the very truths that you and I now hold. And yet today they are the ones who are undoing their own work and leading the charge against scripture, its inerrancy, its truthfulness. Be careful when you stand lest you fall. He says that there will be betrayals. They will betray one another. There will be no loyalty. Even within one's family, mother will be against daughter and father against son. And they will hate one another. Again, he picks up this theme of deception. He says there will be many false prophets that will rise up and deceive many. In verse 12, and because lawlessness will abound, ungodliness and wickedness will grow, the love of many will grow cold. Believers who ostensibly profess faith in Christ and love for Christ will find that their love will dissipate and disappear. Why? Because they were never saved. Verse 13, however, says, but he who endures to the end will be saved. He tells us not only then will his coming be preceded by great persecution, by apostasy, but by the preaching of the gospel. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. That Christ will not return before all men have heard the gospel. Because the gospel will be for them. First of all, the means of salvation to God's elect. But it will also be the standard by which men will be judged. So the gospel will be preached throughout the world. And then the end will come. But Jesus, in verses 15 to 27, interrupts this discourse with what I would want to see as a parenthesis in the argument. 
Because he's been talking to them about some of the things that will occur prior to his coming. There will be deception. There will be difficulties. There will be great persecution and apostasy and the preaching of the gospel. But he also told them that prior to his coming, there will be the destruction of Jerusalem. One of, one of the reasons is that you must believe the Bible, it is because of biblical prophecies. You cannot read throughout the Old Testament how you have prophecies after prophecies that have been fulfilled. You just take Isaiah the prophet. Before Cyrus came on the scene, some 120 years before this man was ever born, Isaiah identified him by name and told us what he would do. There's no, nobody can ever do that unless it is given of God. Here, Jesus, somewhere in AD 33, looks through the telescope of time and sees 40 years later that Jerusalem would be destroyed. Who on earth could have thought that 40 years that Jerusalem would fall? But Jesus saw it. And here he tells them. In verses 15. Therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Whoever reads that he will understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. He's talking about the fall of Jerusalem. He interrupts this general description of the times before he comes. With a specific look at what will occur in Jerusalem. And he speaks of the abomination of desolation. Along with the language taken from the book of Daniel. When Daniel speaks of this. For instance in Daniel 11.31. And he says forces shall be mustered by him. They shall defile the sanctuary. Fortress. They shall take away the daily sacrifices. And place there the abomination of desolation. We all believe that what Daniel saw when he talks about placing there in the sanctuary the abomination of desolation refers to Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV. We know that after the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BC that the kingdom of Alexander was divided amongst his generals and essentially Palestine, in which Israel resided and resides, was under conflicting powers. And Antiochus came to the throne, a Seleucidian king. And he came to the throne and it appears that there was much disturbance in Jerusalem. You had varying high priests battling each other for control. And the Jews were seen by Antiochus the Syrian to be seditious. And so in 167 BC, he had enough of the Jews. And he decided that he was going to put them in their places. So he rode into Jerusalem with his army. And he did something that should never have been done. This is a man who was very full of himself. He called himself... Antiochus Epiphanes. And Epiphanes means the manifestation or appearance of God. So he thought of himself as the very appearance of God. If well, if he's the appearance of God, he could do whatever he wants. So he goes into Jerusalem. He raided 
the treasury, took out the gold and took out the money that was there. He sacrificed pigs on the altar of burnt offering in the temple. And more egregiously, he placed an idol of Zeus in the most holy place on the altar. It is this action, of course, that Daniel refers to then as the abomination of desolation. Jesus invokes this imagery to refer to the raising of the temple, to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, this time by Titus. And Titus' army, when they went into Jerusalem, they also sacrificed in the temple to their gods. They also set up the Roman standard in the temple court. And Jesus refers to the destruction of Jerusalem as the harbinger of his coming, as a sign, as a premonition of his coming. And he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and says that they will be marked by, these days will be marked by great difficulty in verse 21, in following. In fact, in verse 16, he speaks about this, great difficulties. What occurred in Jerusalem in 70 AD after Titus' army besieged Jerusalem for five months? They actually starved the city. Josephus tells us the story of a woman, one of the most shocking things that we can ever think of. But that she was so hungry that she killed and roasted and ate her baby that was still nursing, that was still being breastfed. It says that even the Romans, when they came into the city, they were so appalled to see little children, mothers and fathers in houses dead, that they would not even rob the houses as they usually do. The fall of Jerusalem was terrible because the Romans encircled the city with crosses. They could not, it seemed, find space to place crosses of people who were killed by the Romans. And when Jesus speaks of this time, he says, But woe to those who are pregnant. He speaks of this time, pray that your flight is not in winter because of the difficulty on the Sabbath, because there is no help, given the scruples of the Jews. He says this a time of emergency, if you go back in verse 16, somebody's on, he says those on Judah to flee to the mountains. He says those who are on the housetop should not go back in the house to get supplies. And if one is in the field, he should not go back for a cloak. These will be times of emergency. So dangerous, so deadly, so horrible will those times be, Jesus says, that unless the Lord were sh not, should shorten those days, unless the Lord shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. And God would shorten those days for the sake of his elect. He tells them that emerging out of these, these times, that there will be false teachers who will say, look, there is Christ, or there. But he says, do not believe them. 
He says, false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders and deceive, if possible, even the elect. And say, I've told you this before. He says, when they tell you, look, is in the desert, don't go out. Or look, is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. Why? Because the coming of the Lord will be visible. Just like lightning flashes from the east to the west, it is visible. So, so all will see the coming of the Son of Man. And then he makes this curious statement in verse 28. For where the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And though it is an enigmatic saying, it probably most likely means just as vultures which are circling over corpses are visible, so the coming of the Son of Man will be visible. Where the eagles or where the vultures are gathered together, wherever the carcass is there, the eagles will be gathered. We've seen in these verses the signs that will precede the coming of the Lord. Great deception, great difficulties. We will see the apostasy and the persecution of the church and the fall of Jerusalem as narrated in verses 15 to 28. But in verses 29 to 35, we see the glorious arrival of the coming of Christ. We see the signs that will precede his coming. Now we see his glorious arrival. In verse 29, the evangelist states that after the tribulation of those days, there are some who take that to mean after the tribulation explained or given to us in verses 15 to 28, that is after the fall of Jerusalem. But I think that that is the least likely possibility. In fact, people like Carson believe that we ought to go back to what was said in verse 9 of 24, where he says, they, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my sake. And so the tribulation might very well, that he speaks of here, refer to that in verse 9. After the tribulation of those days, he says, The sun will, not, will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The star will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Here he speaks of the coming of the Lord. And the first thing he says is that it will be marked by great cataclysmic events. There will be a shaking of the heavens. There will be a disruption in the heavenly bodies so that the sun will be darkened. And turn black. The moon will stop giving light. Makes sense. Because the moon is a reflection of the sun. And he says the stars will fall from heaven. This description, of course, comes from Isaiah 13, verse 9, and chapter 34, verse 4. Verse 4. But this now marks the end of the age. But what he's saying is that there will be a shaking of the heavens. A shaking of the very foundation of the cosmos. This world which God brought out of chaos and brought it into cosmos will once again return to chaos. And then he said these words in verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In the midst of this 
cataclysmic meltdown of the creation, Jesus Christ will appear in glory. And our Lord Jesus tells us that his coming will be glorious. His coming will be with power and great glory. This picks up the imagery that we find in Daniel 7 verse 13 and following. Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Very often clouds in the Old Testament was associated with the glory of God. God led Israel with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God's Shekinah glory came in the form of a cloud. And here we see Jesus coming on the clouds. He is then Yahweh of old. The glorious God of the Old Testament who is coming and is coming unlike his first coming, which was a coming in weakness. A coming in poverty, but this coming is a coming in blazing glory. In tremendous power. And the writer tells us, Matthew records for us, that when he comes, and comes in blazing glory, that all the tribes of the earth will mourn, because his coming will mean eternal suffering for those who do not know him. But he also will come and his coming will be glory for his saints. For in verse 31, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four corners. You see, it will mean the salvation of his children. Well, very rapidly. The remainder of the text points out the nature of his coming. And the behavior that should characterize believers in verse 31 to 51. First of all, he says that there should be discernment. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and put forth leaves, we know that summer is near. And he says, men are astute in judging nature. We can look at creation, the plants, and we can determine the times and seasons. And just as we are able to demonstrate discernment regarding nature, so discernment must be demonstrated in light of the coming of the Lord. He goes on to describe the coming of the Lord in these ways. First of all, that the coming of the Lord is near. Verse 33, so also when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the door. He says, this generation, this generation marked by disobedience and rebellion and blindness. So it's not just referring to people living there, but that generation of ungodly men will not pass away until these things take place. His coming is certain because heaven and earth will not pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. He described his coming as near, as certain then in verses 34 and 35. But more importantly, he described his coming, this glorious coming, as 
unknown. In verse 36, But of the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, only my Father. And Jesus Christ, of course, is God the Son. He knows all things, but as the Messiah, as the one sent, the servant of the Lord, it was not given to him to know the return. And here he says, no one knows. And talk about speculation. All kinds of charts being built. All kinds of dates being given. It's ridiculous. We're not reading the scriptures seriously. It's unknown to us. What we do know is that his coming will be sudden and unexpected. And that's why he tells the story of the days of Noah. Where men and women were eating and drinking and marrying and giving into marriage. What's he talking about? What he's saying? They were living ordinary lives. They were doing what people ordinarily do. They eat and drink. They party. They get married and they give their children into marriage. They were living ordinary lives. And these people in the days of Noah listened to Noah preaching but didn't pay attention to him. They thought he was a crazy guy. This man is building a boat. Rain has not even fallen. He wasn't beside some seashore. But the guy's building a boat in the middle of nowhere. Where is he going? What's he doing? And yet we are told, they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. His coming will be sudden and unexpected. It's not something that will be announced. You're not going to be able to look at the skies and start seeing that something is going to happen. Let me get ready. It will be unknown. It will be sudden. His coming not only will be marked by suddenness, its coming will mark a day of separation. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women at a mill grinding corn or some grain. One taken and the other one left. His coming will be sudden. It will be a day of separation. And so he says they are to watch. They are to watch. He uses the parable of the faithful and faithful servant in 45 to 51 to teach that the coming of the Lord means that believers should not be found doing their own will. They must not be like the evil servant who says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with the drunkards. Because the master will come on a day when he is not looking suddenly again. And come on an hour when he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint his, his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's saying his coming then means that there must be preparation for one ought not to live like that unfaithful, disobedient servant who does his own will. One should do the will of God. If one were to do his own will and were to be found doing his own will when the Lord comes, he will be punished and he'll be separated from the Lord for eternity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. My friends, there's a lot of material here to cover, but I want to make a few comments regarding this glorious coming of the Lord. This is the day when the church awaits the bridegroom. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We, who are God's people, are waiting 
for this great day of the coming of the Lord. We say, Maranatha, O Lord, come. And we know that there are several comings of the Lord. That he came in the first coming. That he repeatedly comes to us in the gospel. Speaking to our hearts and to our consciences. He comes to us in the presence of the Holy Spirit where he says, If a man loves me, he will keep my words and my father will love him. And, he will, and we will come to him and make our board with him while he comes to his people by the Spirit. But there is a day when Christ himself will come personally and visibly. And this coming teaches us that history is not circular. The time is not merely repetitive or pointless, but purposeful. That history moves towards a goal. That Christ will bring this world to an end, that he will come. And because Christ is coming, it means you and I must prepare for the coming of the Lord. Now how do we do that? I want to suggest first that we prepare for his coming by realizing that his coming demands endurance. In chapter 24 verse 13, Jesus made these comments. He says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. There will be lawlessness. The love of many will grow cold. But he who endures. Hypermene means to bear up under a load. Bear up under a strain. And believers in the midst of persecution and difficulties. Must bear up under the load. It's good to begin the Christian life. But I want to suggest it is best to end it. You must get into this race, but oh my friends, you must endure to the end. Because it is these who endure to the end who will be saved. The Bible does not teach that we can endure by ourselves. We endure by the grace of God. But he has given us all things for life and for godliness in Jesus Christ. He has given us the power and the ability to stick to the course. Because in Christ we have all the resources we have. If we need strength, we find strength in Christ. If we need grace, we find it in Christ. But what we are to do is having begun this race, we are to ensure by the grace of God that we end it and we end it well. Amen. He who endures to the end. He who endures to the end will be saved. How do you prepare for his coming? You do that by realizing that Christ, in, Christ demands endurance to the end. But secondly, if we are to prepare for the coming of Christ, his coming not only demands endurance, his, his coming demands wisdom in reading the signs of the times. There has been much, too much speculation about the parousia. And many of these are futile. We should not read into things like wars and tsunamis and the collapse of the Twin Towers. We shouldn't see these troubles, these upheavals in nature and in society as directly tied to the coming of the Lord. 
We shouldn't seek to date the coming of the Lord by events in the Middle East. I mean, the scriptures are clear that no man knows the hour or the minute when the Lord Jesus Christ will come. But at the same time, while we are not to be reading specific spiritual significance in events on earth, we are not at the same time to be undiscerning. Because as we look at the persecution of the church, as we look at false prophets who arise, as we look at the cataclysmic events in society, the destructive forces at work, and as we look at the spread of the gospel, we are to be discerning. We are to begin to recognize that this is the beginning of the end. In other words, we must look at things as they unfold in society and realize that we are in the home stretch. What these signs teach us is that the end of the age has begun. That there is indeed only one red letter date on the divine calendar. That after Jesus died and rose again, the end has begun. And there's only one more date that we await. And it's the coming of Christ. You must look at life and look at society. Not trying to pinpoint which events point to some other spiritual thing. But know that all of what we see unfolding, the false prophets, the false messiahs, the wars and the upheavals and the persecution of the church, that these are to teach us that we are closer to our home than when we began. That our salvation is nearer than when we began. That we are in the home stretch. And if that takes us another million years or another few days, we are closer to home than when we began. My dear friends, finally, what this text teaches us is that if we are to prepare a right for the coming of the Lord, not only does it demand endurance and demand wisdom in reading the signs of the times correctly, but the coming of the Lord Jesus demands watchfulness. I've often been struck by this verse in verse 42 having spoken about the two who are grinding and one taken, Jesus says, therefore, watch. For you do not know what hour the, your Lord is coming. Therefore, watch. The writer says, and again I say to you, watch. If we are to prepare for Christ's coming, we must watch. Christ's coming will be sudden and shattering. It will be the inbreaking of God upon the godless. And just like the flood came upon men and women who were unconcerned about their spiritual state, who were giving to living their lives in pleasure, and then sudden destruction, so it will it be in our day or in the future when Jesus comes. People will be doing regular things. They will be pursuing their own business, their own pleasure, unconcerned about God, and Christ will come, and there will be no repentance. There will be no possibility of changing allegiance. There will be no possibility of repentance. 
So Jesus says, watch. If we are to watch, we must know that watchfulness demands preparedness. The only sure way to watch is to be prepared for his coming. Is to do what you've got to do right. And as a little boy, we used to go on trips. And in those days, of course, time didn't mean much. They told you, the bus is going to come and pick you up. You're going to go to the beach. The bus is going to come and pick you up. It's going to come early. <laughs> but early could be anything from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock. So what do you do? You got ready at 5. The bus driver won't get up at 5. So you got ready at 5. So whether he comes at 6 or at 10, you're ready. And if you want to watch, it means you want to be prepared. And to be prepared, you must enter into a relationship with Jesus early. You must kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. You must make accounts right with God. You must look in your own heart and life and admit that you are a sinner. You must throw yourself upon grace. You must say, Lord, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to your cross I cling. You must say, Lord, unless you show me mercy, I will be damned. Lord, I cannot satisfy you. I cannot justify myself, but I need grace. And I receive you, and I receive your gift on the cross. I receive your death as full and final payment for my sins. And only when you receive Jesus have you begun to be prepared for his coming. Are you saved? Because you see, if you cannot answer yes, you're not prepared. You see, watchfulness requires preparedness by settling account with Christ. But watchfulness requires alertness. No, we are not to be stargazers. We aren't to give up our work. We aren't to spend our whole day, whole, whole day looking in the sky. No, we are to be busy working. But we should have an eternal perspective of heaven. We should rise up each morning thinking this may yet be the day. Whether I'm called home or my Savior comes. We must be, we must be watchful. It means we are to be alert. Waiting for the Lord's coming. Knowing that this is not our home. But we are drawing closer home. We are alert. We should be living as those who are sober. Not those who are drunk. Living like those who are children of light and not darkness. We are to be alert. And finally, friends, we are to be Faithful, You see, watchfulness demands alertness, but it demands faithfulness. We should be like that servant, doing God's will, busy working, busy doing God's will, so that when our Savior comes, he does not find us doing our own will, like this unfaithful servant who beat his other servants and Drunk with drunkards and ate with drunkards. No, we should be found if we are watchful, busy doing God's work in God's way. That whether he comes early or he comes late, he finds us faithful. My friends, this is the best of news. That our Savior is coming again. I say to you, watch. And again I say, Watch.